recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Internet Radio. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Today is Friday, May 24th, 2013. I had to um, cancel the regularly scheduled program this week, which was Acts chapter 4. I've been quite ill all week. It, it's, um, I haven't been sick in years. I'm not bragging. It's just true. I haven't been sick in at least eight years. I, I haven't... Um, I contracted some sort of virus. I mean, there's actually not only me, but several um, family members, and we all got it at the same time. I don't know what the hell it is. It's absolutely crazy. It, it's, um, it, it caused dehydration, and I have severe um, muscle cramps and spasms throughout my entire back to the point where I feel like my shoulders are being torn off of torn off of my body. It, it's um, something I've never experienced. It, it's of course we've all had back pulls and, and muscle spasms, but nothing like this. Uh, I actually resorted to having to take a painkiller, and I haven't taken a pill in at least sixteen years, and, and maybe longer, maybe seventeen or eighteen. So, so um, that that that's the point that that I've been at, and and that's what I've been dealing with all week. So tonight I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to do something um, well, well, not really completely off the cuff, but but this is um, quite extemporaneous. I'm going to present a paper of Clifton Emmerheiser's, well, which is one of the first um, papers that he wrote in brochure format as a handout. It's entitled, A King James Version Bible with a Good Center Reference Teaches and Proves to Sea Line. I'm doing this because later this year, I plan on presenting a series of programs explaining to sea line from, from my own Christian identity perspective, I believe, certainly, but with all certainty, that what we call to see line is true. And many people, um, but many people that even understand the racial message of Scripture don't accept what, what we may call traditional seed line teaching, and I can't blame them in a lot of ways because traditional two-seed line teaching insists that Satan is in heaven. And, and, well, that's just not true. Satan was cast out of heaven. Satan was cast out of heaven um, at a time long before the history of the Adamic race began that can be evidenced in Scripture. I don't, I don't blame a lot of people for not accepting traditional two-seed line because of its superstitious Catholic elements. And um, what we're going to elucidate this a lot further as the year progresses. Tonight, uh, I'm going to present this paper which Clifton wrote. And, and I thought, 
since um so, since I really wanted to present the program tonight, and since I do plan on a much deeper discussion of what we call two seed line later this year, I thought this would be a good starting point, both for that discussion and and um and and also to supply me with material for a program tonight because of my illness i I just wasn't able to to um prepare my acts chapter four presentation i i I'm not um yeah you know i I believe I know my scripture as good as anybody, but none of my biblical history and and um biblical exegesis presentations, none of them are off the cuff that there's hours of preparatory work that goes into each one of them. I do it that way, first, because I take what I do seriously, and second, so that I can produce the printed matter along with the podcast, and that's the way I prefer to do it, and that way both versions are available freely at Christagenia with the posting of each of my programs. That's that. That's my um, that that's my practice, and and I'll continue to uphold it. Every once in a while, I do a completely extemporaneous program. I mean, I did a a presentation of Malachi here last year, and and still haven't written the notes for that because it was extemporaneous. I'll get a, I'll get around to it, God willing, sooner or later. Okay, Clifton wrote this brochure. If I had to guess, I would say it was maybe 1999 or 2000. It, it was one of the first um, papers he produced in brochure format. He had already been producing his Watchman's teaching letters for quite some time. Well, when he decided to, to, to write brochures also, and, and it's a good format, the, the brochure format is an excellent format. It, it's um, they make excellent handouts, and, and um, that, that they're most of them are, are written with, with a general topic in mind, and and they're good um, witnessing material. Clifton still prints most of his papers in brochure format to this day. I myself, um, I, I don't do it. I should. I've been um, pondering putting my papers into brochure format to make them available as PDFs on my website. That that would be my goal, to make them freely available and, and, and allow people to print them and hand them out all they want. That That's something that's sort of been on a back burner for several years. If, um, if, if anybody would ever like to volunteer... All of the open office documents of my papers are available, or PDF documents of mine and Clifton's papers are available, and to have um, them put into that brochure format would probably, um, with modern software, Clifton has a lot of them in brochure format, but the software is um, 15 years old, and, and it, it's, that, that's the way he started out, and I don't blame him for not wanting to rush back and, and update every single one of them with new software. That's a huge task. But, but um, of course, we'd always be happy to find volunteers who, who could undertake some of that work and, and put their hand to the plow along with us if, um, 
if that's a good way of putting it. Okay, a King James Version Bible with a good center reference teaches and proves to seed line. If I were to um, write the title of this, uh, I would say that a King James Version Bible with a good center reference certainly gives the serious student the opportunity to learn to see line. Let's put it that way. And I'm going to um, read Clifton's paper and, and offer my own commentary interspersed with, with, with Clifton's remarks. If you have a King James Version Bible with the proper center reference, you can very readily prove two seed line teaching with it, for it will take you from one supporting verse of Scripture to another almost endlessly on the subject. And, and let me say that when I first read this paper, when I actually proofread this paper for, for Clifton, uh, along with other proofreaders, of course, and... and um, the Bible that I was using didn't have such an, a center reference, and I went looking for one, and I did find one. The Zondervan Classic Reference Bible has this exact center reference that Clifton is describing. There are also Thomas Nelson Bibles with ha which employ the same center reference. I don't know um, how many different varieties of center references there are in Bibles, but, but they're important because that they lead people to certain conclusions, and no cross-reference on the Bible is ever going to be perfect, especially since none of them are really, um, none of them have been constructed from the racially aware perspective that all identity Christians should have, whether or not they consider themselves to see line. So, so none of them are constructed in that fashion, and, and that's sad. But, but even the things, even the most scholarly um, publications of Scripture, for, for instance, the, um, the NA27, which I'm accustomed to using, of course, that's only a Greek volume. The NA27 is replete with cross-references for Scripture. And I would say that about three-quarters of them are useless. That they'll, they'll cross-reference another passage simply because that they have a similar word or a similar phrase and and that doesn't mean they necessarily have anything to do with each other. And the rest of them, I mean, some of them are excellent, but, but the, I would say that the majority of the cross-references that, that I see are, are, are like, um, that, that they, they, they evoke the, the phrase big deal in, in my thinking, like, or, or why'd they cross-reference that, or what does that have to do with that verse? And quite often, they have nothing to do with each other. So, so I don't, you know, just because a similar word or a similar phrase exists in two different passages of Scripture doesn't necessarily mean that they should be related. Perhaps one day I'll do a program on that. Back to Clifton's paper. Not that the King James Version is an especially advisable Bible to use for study, as it is alleged to contain 
approximately 27,000 translation mistakes. Uh, I don't have a comment on that one, one way or the other. It has very many. I've never commented. I, I've never counted them, of course. This King James Version center reference system that Clifton is referring to was produced by the opinions of many contributing scholars and theologians. Most of the older Bibles have this proper center reference system. Clifton has a King James Version published by the World Publishing Company during the mid-1950s, which has the proper center reference system. He checked the World Bible recently at a Christian bookstore, and it had been changed from the one which he has. He also has a large Southwestern Bible, which has the correct center reference system. He understands that some of the Bibles printed by Dove, D-O-V-E, Incorporated of Nashville, Tennessee, have the correct center reference also. Today, Clifton says, you can purchase a King James Version Zondervan Classic Reference Bible with the correct, meaning this one that, that, that he um, is referring to, with the correct center reference system. If you already have the King James Version with the center reference, you can check the following passages to see if you have the right one. And he gives us these examples. Number one, if Revelation 12.9 takes you to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 and 4, if Revela to, to Revelation verse, I'm sorry, chapter 20, verse 2, chapter 20, verse 3, and Revelation chapter 9, verse 1. And his second example, if Genesis 3.1 takes you to Revelation 12.9, 2 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians 11.3. His third example is if Jude 6 takes you to John 8.44, 2 Peter 2.4, and Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. If you find these center references in your present King James Version Bible, chances are you have the correct center reference system. Beware of Nelson, Universal, or Schofield. Clifton continues, although the King James Version has approximately 27,000 mistakes in translation, it has one thing in its favor. It was translated word for word, which enabled it to be adapted to a numbered concordance, like the Strong's. And yes, the King James translation I don't know about the word-for-word -word translation. There's a lot of phrases in the King James which come from one particular Hebrew word. But Clifton's right. The King James Version is very, uh, the, the way it's translated was very amenable to the creation of a concordance. Clifton goes on to explain that there are two kinds of devils. Let me say that the... Um, The word devil was translated from two different Greek words, the first one being a demon, which is um, the Greeks saw a demon as a lesser god. That, that, I believe, is the stock 
Liddell and Scott translation. A demon is a, a spiritual being in the demonic realm, and, and um, there's many examples of demons in Scripture. But I would not confuse the demonic realm with what we call heaven. And that's a lot of the people who insist that Satan is still in heaven are confusing the demonic realm, are confusing things on this earth which are unseen with what the Bible calls heaven. And, and that's a confusion, that, 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 that's a correlation which should not be made. Now, there's that, word de- that, there's that Greek word which gives us demon. Demon is actually a transliteration of that word daimon in Greek, which is a demon, uh, an invisible spirit being here, which affects us at times here. We see them all over the New Testament. Now, the other word translated devil in the King James is the word diabolus. And, and diabolus is literally an accuser. It's someone who casts an accusation. And, and by implication, the, the, the accusation is false. So therefore, wherever the word diabolus appears in Greek, the Christogenian New Testament translates it fully false accuser. That now, of course, a diabolus, but most of the diaboloi that I've ever seen, and the diaboloi of the New Testament, that they're walking around in human bodies, right? Clifton says there are two kinds of devils. And he goes on to say that when we start running the center reference of the King James Version concerning two-seed-line doctrine, we will encounter two kinds of satanic entities. Now, a satanic entity is not necessarily a spirit in heaven. This is the problem. This is the problem with explaining two-seed-line, is that when these words are discussed, people see different visions in in their heads, different representations uh, of what they believe these things mean. When I say Satan, I'm not talking about some evil demon being sitting on a throne, ruling over all of the other evil demon beings who who are unseen to men and, and, and who chastise and castigate and torture us. That's Catholic. That's not Christian. A satanic, to be satanic is simply to be in opposition to God, an entity which is opposed to Yahweh, our God. And um, even man, even the children of God, have the capability of being satanic or opposed to God. Now, there are two types of beings in the world. There are beings in the world whose very origin, whose very derivation is contrary to God's law. Those people, that's the capital S, Satan. Those people fall into that category. When God's children rebel against him, as Peter rebelled against Christ, and Christ called him Satan, Well, Peter has an opportunity to repent. 
those people who came into existence contrary to God's law in the first place, they have no opportunity to repent. They are capital S Satans. Peter has an opportunity to repent because he's a child of God, because he was born in accordance with God's law of kind after kind, because he's a child of Adam. He could be a small s Satan. He could never be a capital S Satan. Clifton says, we will encounter, going through the center reference of the King James, two kinds of satanic entities. One, an evil counterfeit genetic gene pool of living people directly descended from Satan himself through Cain. Now, in that statement, Clifton is identifying Satan as that serpent in the garden that seduced Eve. That serpent in the garden that seduced Eve, in my Weltanschauung, in my worldview, in my view of the scripture, isn't necessarily the chief demon who came down from heaven and seduced Eve at that point. That's the Catholic version of Satan that a lot of traditional two-seed line teachers cling to. And I don't uphold that. I don't uphold that at all. However, that serpent in the garden was Satan, was one of those capital S satanic beings. That I would uphold. And those people, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they are all capital S Satan's. And I see the serpent as one of those. They are evil. They are genetic. They pass their genes down from generation to generation. They are a race. In that respect, they are a race because they all carry those same genes, which are um, which came to be through rebellion from God. That's the way I see that. And we'll discuss all these things throughout this year as I present a two seed line series, which I plan to do on Saturday nights here later, later this summer. Yahweh willing, best laid plans of mice and men. God willing, that's what I plan to do here. The second type of devil Clifton defines as disembodied spirits of former living but now departed fallen angels, these are demons, who like to take up residence in living men and sometimes swine. We do have examples of that in Scripture. With this study, we are going to concentrate on the living devils walking around today in shoe leather among us and avoid the cross-references in the King James Version of the wandering spirits of the angel dead, as that is entirely a separate topic. Clifton says, I now invite the reader to examine the following center references with the proper King James Version Bible and confirm for yourself the accuracy of these references. Let me say, and, and I've elucidated this in papers on my website, that the Enoch literature 
what which I've quoted, and which is quoted by the apostles, the Enoch literature informs us that demons, evil spirits, come from this come from the spirits of bastards. That evil spirits are created through race mixing. Initially, that race mixing was between angel kind and animal kind, according to the Enoch literature. Later on, that race mixing occurred between angel kind or perhaps fallen angel kind and Adam kind, which we see happen in Genesis chapter 3 and in Genesis chapter 6. And I will be expounding on that quite to, to quite a large extent during the course of this year. Clifton now follows this this um Zondervan classic. I'll, I'll call it, it. It's I know this is this cross reference is available through the Zondervan Classic Reference Bible today. That that's probably one of the more popular publications which it's available to. I'll try to refer to it as simply the classical center reference. Clifton follows this and he begins at Revelation chapter twelve nine. And he explains to us that Revelation 12.9 in this system is cross-referenced to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 and 4. Genesis 3, verses 1 and 4 is cross-referenced to Revelation 12.9 and to 2 Corinthians 11.3. Revelation 12.9 I'll read Revelation 12, 7 through 9 in the King James Version of Scripture. All of my readings will be from the King James tonight since we're talking about a cross-reference system employed by the King James Bible, and that's the entire point of this paper, right? And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon fought, and his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and, and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I would say, <clears throat> and if, 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 um, if you're familiar with my revelation, Revelation commentary, I explain that there were um, three. This is not a prophecy which has a dual fulfillment. This is a prophecy which had three fulfillments. And the first one, and, and the one which is most important, had to happen before the placement of the Adamic race on this earth. Because 
the great dragon that was cast out of heaven is, is also that old serpent. And that old serpent can only be it can only be a reference to the serpent of Genesis chapter 3. I'm sorry, I have the hiccups. And that serpent of Genesis chapter 3 surely was not alone because that serpent of Genesis chapter 3 represented the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil had to refer to an entire race as trees are often used to represent races in the Bible. Now, where you want to imagine heaven to be is basically immaterial. The um, Christ said in Luke, and we're going to get to that tonight in, in this cross-reference system as Clifton elucidates, Christ said in Luke that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, which must be another reference to the same thing that Revelation 12.9 is talking about. Now, and, and we'll talk about that at greater length later on. Now, whether you want to consider heaven to be outer space, whether you want to consider heaven to be... Um, another plane of existence, another dimension, or whether you want to consider heaven to be a godly government on earth. Because in the prophets, heaven is often used, and this can be established, I would start with Revelation chapter 6, heaven is often used as an allegory for a godly government on earth. Wherever you want to imagine this heaven to be that Satan was cast out of, is fine with me. I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going to accept you insisting to me that it has to be any particular one of those things, because I don't know anything in Scripture. Now, I don't know everything, believe me, but I don't know anything in Scripture that would force me to believe that heaven was one or the other of those three things. What I have to accept from Scripture is that this war in heaven happened before Adam was placed in the garden. Why? Because that's when that old serpent had to have been there to seduce Eve. That old serpent had to already be there. If that old serpent came from heaven and was cast out, it had to happen before the creation of Adamic man. Real simple. Otherwise, Satan and the dragon couldn't be that old serpent. That old serpent must have been one leaf on the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a perfect allegory for what we, what we would consider to be fallen angels. No matter where you want to think the angels fell from, it's immaterial. 
we have a tree in the garden which Yahweh didn't plant in the garden. It's there, but we don't see that Yahweh planted it. Yahweh put Adam in the garden, and after he put Adam in the garden, he made to grow out of the ground every tree that was pleasant to the eyes and good for fruit. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is in the midst of the garden. And it has to represent a race. A race of beings called angels who knew good. In other words, at one time they weren't fallen and who experienced evil by rebelling against God. Real simple. This actually correlates very well with anthropology and what we know from archaeology. I won't even go there tonight. Tonight the purpose is to follow Clifton's paper. However, I have to expound on these things as I go along so that people understand my two seed line perspective and that it certainly doesn't rely on anything that might be considered superstitious. It doesn't rely on magic. It doesn't rely on um, the Catholic and medieval portrayals of angels and demons. So the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. And they do that to this day. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And Clifton's center reference, the classical center reference, correlates that to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 and 4, which I will read now. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which Yahweh had made. Now, a certain clown, that there's a certain clown pastor in Christian identity which wants to insist that Genesis 3, verse 1 proves that Yahweh made all the other races of, of men, and this proves it. I don't know how the hell this proves that, because one has nothing to do with the other. He's comparing apples and oranges. Let me say this. Now, the Volkswagen was more economical than any automobile that Chevrolet had made. Okay, did Chevy make Volkswagens? No, Chevy didn't make Volkswagens. The reason for this statement at Genesis chapter 3 is very simple to understand. Once you understand that this is a parable, this is a poetic allegory. A parable is a series of poetic allegories that tell a story. The reason why this being is called a serpent is because out of all the animals of God's creation, the serpent is the most cunning. So we're going to call this being that seduced Eve a serpent for that reason. That's all that's being related here. It doesn't prove that God made all the beasts of the field. 
that that ever existed. It doesn't prove that God made um, all of the hominids that exist today, because this says this because Moses wrote this allegory 3,500 years ago. There's a there's a real Canaanite bait and switch going on there. So so I would not you, you cannot use Genesis 3:1 to prove that. Yahweh God is responsible for the creation of all the bastard races. But that's actually, uh, it's childish. And it's being passed off in some circles as Christian identity. And it's really Jewish deception. That's what I'll label it. We call this being that seduced Eve a serpent because the serpent is the most cunning of the animal world. That's all Genesis 3, 1 is saying. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which Yahweh had made. And he said unto the woman, Yeah, Yahweh has said, You shall, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, I'm sorry about the archaic language, but it is the King James Version. We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the, tree, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, Yahweh has said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. So we see this verse in this classical cross-reference system, we see this passage correlated, and I would say it's correctly correlated, to Revelation 12, 7 through 9, and the fall of those angels which rebelled against God. And those angels that rebelled against God are... With all of their progeny, with all of their offspring, and they have offspring, they are the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was in the midst of the garden. This passage, Genesis 3, 1 through 4, is cross-referenced to Revelation 12, 9, and is cross-referenced to 2 Corinthians eleven three, which says in the King James Version, but I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Yahshua. The serpent beguiled Eve. That word can be translated seduced, ex apateo. Let me say that, um, and the biggest point of, of contention with those in, in identity Christianity which dispute 2C line, and I'm referring to Ted Wheeland. Ted Wheeland would say that um, Eve's crime was a thought crime, that there really was no act. And that's his assertion, and it's ridiculous. There are no thought crimes in the Bible. Thought crimes are basically Jewish. Every crime in the Bible, every sin, which every sin, 
Now, I understand that Christ said that if you look at a woman with lust, you have already sinned, and he's not wrong. But every sin in the Bible which demands a punishment requires an action. There's no law that punishes anybody for anything that's merely a thought. Every single sin in the Bible which demands a punishment requires an action, requires the performance of a wrongful action. If Eve's crime was a thought crime, as Clifton likes to say, then maybe the fig leaves should have covered their mouths or their heads and not their genitals. The next reference Clifton cites, cross-referenced in Revelation 12.9, Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, is cross-referenced in this classical reference system to 2 Peter, chapter 2, verse 4, and to Revelation 12, 9. So let's read Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, until the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. I've taught in Christrike that this happened with the advent of Christianity. God's kingdom on earth, although it was far from perfect, was a Christian kingdom. All of the men of our race were converted to Christ during that period. And for a thousand years, the Jew did not rule over them. For a thousand years, those genetically polluted beings who are always opposed to God did not rule over Adamic man until the thousand years were up, which happened with the French Revolution and the emancipation of the Jew. Of course, to understand that takes a much longer explanation. That's the purpose of my Revelation commentary, and, and, and it's thoroughly explained, I, I pray, in not, not only um, Revelation chapter 20 in Christ, right, but basically in Revelations chapters 12 through 17 in my commentary. I can't possibly squeeze it all into this program, right? 
Now, Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, is also cross-referenced to 2 Peter 2, verse 4. For if Yahweh spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to the grave, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Now that's also cross-referenced to Jude 6. And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he is reserved in everlasting chains, under darkness, under the judgment of the great day. What does that all mean? Well, in my Jude commentary, in my 2 Peter commentary, and in a program I did with Clifton Emma Heiser, and the paper that, and the paper that Clifton wrote, we described what we believed were those angels and how they were bound in chains of darkness. And it all goes back to Genesis chapter 1 and the creation of God. Because in Genesis chapter 1, which describes the creation of God, we see the, the creation of the beast of the field, and we see the creation of Adamic man. And we know that the Adamic man is a white man. We know that because all of the descendants of that Adamic man in Genesis chapter 10, all of those original Adamic nations originally, they were all white. There are no sub-Saharan Africans. There were no Hutus, no Tutsis, no Hottentots. There were no South American Indians. I won't call them squat monsters. Well, yeah, I will. There were no Chinamen. There were no yellow people in Genesis chapter 10. There were no brown people or black people in Genesis chapter 10. All of the descendants of Adam were white. That's demonstrable in history. It's demonstrable in archaeology. It's demonstrable in scripture. Yeah, in Jeremiah it says that the Ethiopian can't change the color of his skin. But Jeremiah, he's prophesying about 600 B.C. And there's about 2,400 years between the depiction of the original distribution of the Adamic tribes in Genesis chapter 10 and the time of the prophesying of Jeremiah. 2,400 years. And throughout a good part of that 2,400 years, the people of Cush, in what we know today as Ethiopia, were race-mixing. And eventually they were overrun with Nubians. Yahweh says in Isaiah to the children of Israel, that he gave Mitzrayim and Cush, in the King James Version it says, Egypt and Ethiopia, that he gave them over for the sake of the children of Israel. If Yahweh gave over two white Adamic tribes 
Mitchrain and Cush, is he gave them over to the for the sake of the children of Israel. If he gave them up for the sake of the children of Israel, who did he give them over to? He gave them over to his enemies, and that's why they're niggers today. They used to be white. Yahweh gave them over to his enemies, and they're black today. They're no longer white. That's why. You see a black man in Egypt. You see an Arab in Egypt. Go read the scripture. Yahweh gave up the Egyptians for the sake of the children of Israel. That's a whole nother program. Those people are the enemies of our God. That. That is how fallen angels are reserved. in everlasting chains of darkness. What the hell is a chain of darkness? Jude and Peter aren't necessarily talking about a literal pit. They're not exactly talking about a cave somewhere in Arabia. Those chains of darkness... must be because the fallen angels, according to the Enoch literature, went out and mixed their seed with every kind. They created the other races. Nowhere. Nowhere does it say that Yahweh created the other races. The fallen angels, some race of white men here on earth at one time or another, regardless of where you want to think they came from, they were here on earth, and they must have been white, or they couldn't have been angels. And, and yes, that, that is basically an assertion which can't be scientifically proven, but it can be demonstrated from Scripture. Those fallen angels went out and mixed their seed with every kind. Therefore, today, they're bound in chains of darkness. Verses such as that one which I cited, I believe it's in Isaiah. I'm going to look it up right now. I don't have the Bible memorized. I'm, I'm, I apologize for that. Isaiah 43.3, I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Sheba for thee. Well, these were white nations, and today they're black nations. 
Yahweh gave them to his enemies for the sake of the children of Israel. Ostensibly, we know that Egypt, Sheba, Ethiopia, they were all overrun by Nubians. Nubians are black. It shouldn't be hard to make that correlation. It shouldn't be hard to figure out what those exactly what those chains of darkness could be. It's pretty simple. <laughs> okay. The next passage, Luke 10.18. Luke 10.18, according to Clifton, in this cross-reference system, is linked to John 12.31, John 16.11, and Revelation chapter 12, verses 8 and 9, back to the fall of Satan, right? Luke 10.18 and 10.19, which I'm, I'm happy that Clifton included here. It's amazing that, it, it's amazing that mainstream Preachers, mainstream preachers, do not link Luke ten eighteen and Luke ten nineteen, and and think about the implications of that at the time of Christ in Judea. It is absolutely amazing that they don't see this. It must be the providence of God that they don't see this. Because Christ, he didn't just um, pull phrases out of the air. He didn't say things because they sounded cool. He said things to convey to us a clear message. He said things in a didactory fashion that we learn from what he said. He wasn't a rap star. And he, meaning Yahshua, said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Now this statement is not disconnected from what follows. Behold, speaking to his apostles, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, 
and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Of course, he was talking about the sending off of the 72 apostles in their mission to spread the gospel. That their Messiah had arrived. Satan. Christ saw Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Because Yahshua Christ is Yahweh manifest in the flesh. And that has to be a reference to the events described in Revelation chapter 12, 7 to 9. And those fallen angels of whom that old serpent was among their number. He was a leaf on that tree. And today, and in the time of Christ, we have serpents and scorpions walking around Judea. Christ wasn't telling these people that they had power over snakes and bugs. They were referring to their ability to spread the gospel being unharmed by their enemies and also their ability to cast out unclean spirits. Those same unclean spirits that the book of Enoch tells us come from the children of bastards. These serpents, they're serpents because the law of God is kind after kind. And if that old serpent had children, his children would be serpents. Joshua Christ is not slandering men with vain accusations. He's not name-calling. God does not name-call. He is making patently true statements describing certain people in Palestine at this time. The serpents and scorpions are the Jews, the Edomites, the Arabs, the Canaanites of Palestine in the first century A.D. And the serpents and scorpions are also the spirits of demons, the spirits of bastards. Now this verse, Luke 10:18, in this classic cross-reference system, is cross-referenced to John 12:31 and John 16:11, as well as Revelation chapter 12 describing the fall of the angels. John 12:31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And that's exactly what happened. It took 400 years. 
God speaks on his terms. A day with the Lord is a thousand years. That's exactly what happened. We could take that right back to Revelation chapter 20 and understand that when the world, when the white world accepted Christianity, the prince of this world, the internationalist Jew, was put out of society. He was extricated from white Adamic society. He couldn't hold office any longer. He couldn't hold political office. He couldn't loan money at usury to Christians. He couldn't force Christians to Judaism or hold Christian slaves within the bounds of the Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire, the the Byzantine Empire, and all the parts of Europe that accepted Christianity, the Jew was ostracized. Now, there were some later noblemen and kings who took advantage of the Jew so that they could tax them and profit from them for their own greed. But that's besides the point. The Jew, for a thousand years after the acceptance of Christianity, the Jew was not on equal terms with the Christian. The Jew did not have equal rights of citizenship with Christians. And that condition remained until the time of Napoleon. And it was Napoleon who was responsible for the emancipation of the Jew in Europe. So Christ is basically making a prophecy that now is the judgment of this world, of that society. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out, the prince of that society. That happened in 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed, but it really didn't happen until Satan was cast into the pit upon the acceptance of Christianity in Europe when the Jew was ostracized from society. And the same idea is expressed in John 16, 11, of judgment because the prince of this world, the satanic Jew, in Clifton's words, is judged. The Jews collectively are Satan. Capital S, Satan. They're not the only Satan. Everybody on this planet who was born, who was created, contrary to the laws of our God, is basically a capital S Satan. Only the Adamic white man, the only man whom God explicitly took credit for creating in Genesis chapter 1. Only that Adamic man has the ability to to repent and to conform himself to God because only the Adamic man was made in the image of God. The capital S Satans, they're broken cisterns. They're not in the image of our God. They have not his laws written in their hearts. They have 
evil spirits. They are capital S Satans. They are permanently opposed to Yahweh our God. Now, John 12.31, cross-referenced by Luke 10.18, and Clifton follows this through the cross-references like a chain. John 12.31 is cross-referenced to Luke 10.18, to John 14.30, to John 16.11, which is also cross-referenced to Luke 10.18, which we've just read, to 2 Corinthians 4.4, to Ephesians 6.12, and then back to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 and 4. Back to the garden. Let's read. We've already read John 12.31, the prince of this world. We've already read Luke 10.18. Yahshua saw Satan cast out, fall from heaven, and gives his his people power over serpents and scorpions. We've already read John 16, 11. Now we will read John 14, 30 in the words of Christ. Hereafter, I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world comes and has nothing in me, has no part with Christ. Where is he? He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Edomite Jews are about to come and seize him. We know that the high priests of the time of Christ, we know from history and scripture that they're both Sadducees and Edomites. And Christ called them the prince of that society, the prince of this world the prince of that society. And they certainly were. The scripture proves that. We also see, cross-referenced by John 12, 31, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, where Paul says, in whom the God, the small g God, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Yahshua, who is the image of Yahweh, should shine unto them. Who blinded the minds of the people in Judea which believe not? There wasn't any television back then. The people that had religious control over the children of of, of the the children of the circumcision, the remnant which was still practicing the Hebrew religion, were the Edomite Jews. Paul had to be referring to the Edomite Jews. Now the proof of that, and Clifton doesn't mention it because uh, I guess the cross-references don't mention it. They might later. Uh, I actually didn't read this ahead of time, right? The proof of that is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul explains that Satan sits in the temple of 
sits in the temple of God, imagining himself to be God. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul can only be referring to those same Edomite Jews. So I guess that's one cross-reference that they missed, that they should have made there, but that's okay. John 12.31, talking about the prince of this world, is also cross-referenced. To Ephesians 6.12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, a lot of people would insist that this verse says that Satan's in heaven, and that's just not true. They're taking Paul's allegory, and they're corrupting it. We wrestle not, and, and I'll, I'll read this with Clifton's remarks. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, like our kind, but against satanic Jewish principalities, against satanic Jewish powers, against the satanic Jewish rulers of the darkness of this world, against satanic Jewish spiritual wickedness in high places. And that's certainly true. We shouldn't be wrestling against our brethren. We should be wrestling against all of those evil, satanic, Jewish ideas which have corrupted the minds of our brethren. We shouldn't be fighting against the Jew because the Jew is a wolf. The Jew is only acting as the Jews should be expected to act. We should be fighting to win the hearts of our brethren back from the Jew by exposing the Jew for the devil that he is. Now, 2 Corinthians 11.3 is our next passage. And it's cross-referenced to Genesis 3, 4, the serpent. To John 8, 44. To two close, to, I'm sorry, to Colossians chapter 2, verses 4 and 8, and to Revelation chapter 20, verse 2. the devil who goes out to deceive the entire world. 2 Corinthians 11.3 But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve to his subtlety so your mind should be, corru should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Yahshua. Of course, Paul was writing about presenting a pure virgin to Christ in that passage. 
he was likening that to Eve. Paul didn't want the pure virgin, meaning the the newfound Christian assembly. Paul didn't want that pure virgin. He says in 2 Corinthians 11, 2, for I admire you with, zeal of, with the zeal of Yahweh. This is the Christogenian New Testament. For I have joined you to one husband, the King James says, for I have espoused you to one husband, to present a chaste virgin to Christ. And Paul makes a direct correlation in the next passage. But I fear lest in any way as the serpent had thoroughly beguiled Eve in his villainy. The serpent seduced the virgin Eve. Paul correlates that to his fear that the Jews would corrupt the Christian church, the Virgin of Israel. There's a reason why Paul used that language. There's an explicit reason why he chose the allegory of the corrupted virgin and related it to both the early Christian church at Corinth, and to Eve. That's not a mistake. That passage, 2 Corinthians 11.3, is related back to Genesis 3.4 and to John 8.44. Why would that be? Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own for he is a liar and the father of it. Now this could be related back to the serpent. And it could be related back to Cain. Cain being the progeny of the serpent, was a devil. Only Cain was a murderer from the beginning. Who else was a murderer from the beginning? These Edomite Jews, which Joshua Christ was addressing, who claimed who claimed they were not children of fornication. They knew what Christ was talking about. They knew Christ was talking about race mixing. They claimed they were children of Abraham. They claimed they were never in bondage. Could Israelites claim they were never in bondage? The Edomites were actually in bondage to the children of Israel, but Christ proved to these Jews again and again that they really didn't know their scripture. 
They always got it wrong. Only Cain was a murderer from the beginning. And there was no truth in him. Cain was the child of the serpent. In spite of what Genesis 4.1 reads in the King James Version and in the Masoretic Text, which is demonstrably corrupt. There's a demonstrable gloss in Genesis 4.1. And there's no second witness. There are many witnesses to the contrary. Luke chapter 11, where Christ talks about the blood of Abel being required of this race, addressing the high priests and the Edomite Jews. Luke chapter 11 corroborates John 8.44, that these people were the descendants of Cain. Only the descendants of Cain called this race, could be held accountable, as Christ states in Luke 11, for the murder of Abel. Only Cain killed Abel. Seth wasn't even born yet. Therefore, no true Adamic individual could possibly be held responsible for the murder of Abel. None. Because Seth wasn't even born. And because all true Adamic individuals today descend from Seth, the Israelites descend from Seth, they can't possibly be held responsible for the murder of Abel. Only the descendants of Cain. Only Cain here in John 8 was a murderer from the beginning and abode not the truth. And Cain was a child of the serpent who seduced Eve. Two Corinthians eleven three is also cross referenced to Colossians chapter two, verses four and eight. I'll need a second to come up with this one. Colossians chapter 2, verse 4, and I'll read from there. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order, and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, I'm reading from the King James, so you walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as he had been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. And Clifton listed that in the cross-references, but I really don't know 
It, it, it really doesn't fit the, the, the theme that we're talking about here. However, there is something in, um, in that same chapter, which since I'm here, I'm going to mention. If I could find it. Colossians 2.18. And I'll read the Christogenian New Testament. Since I'm in Colossians chapter 2. Let no one find you unworthy of reward. Being willing with with humiliation even in the worship of the angels or messengers, stepping into things which one sees, heedlessly inflated by the mind of one's flesh. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul informs us that the world's false religions are the worship of the fallen angels. Two Corinthians eleven three is also cross referenced to Revelation chapter twenty verse two. And he laid hold on a dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. So Paul equates the corruption or or he was afraid of the corruption which he was afraid of, which would befall the church at Corinth. He equates the Corinthian church to a pure virgin being presented to Yahweh, which should be the, um, the representation that we use of Christian churches because we are Israel being remarried to Yahweh according to the prophecy in Hosea. Israelites, the seed of Israel returning to God through Christ, we are chaste virgins being presented to God so that he may betroth us unto him in righteousness as he prophesies in Hosea. So Paul makes a very good correlation where he correlates that church being corrupted or his fear of that with the seduction of Eve by the serpent where she lost her virginity. Paul's using that allegory for a very good purpose. The next passage 2 Peter 2.4. 2 Peter 2.4, we've already read. 2 Peter 2.4 was cross-referenced by Revelation chapter 20, verse 2 in this system. And 2 Peter 2.4 cross-references Jude 6, the angels chained in darkness. John 8.44, you're of your father the devil and Colossians chapter 2, verses 4 and 8. 
Jude 6 cross-references John 8.44 and 2 Peter 2.4. I'm not going to read them over and over again and, and punish you with that. Revelation 12.9. Revelation 12.9. Clifton's going back to this. Cross-references Luke 10.18. John 12.31. Princes of this world. Luke 10.18 is that the... Um, the fall of Satan from heaven and Christ's giving the apostles authority over serpents and scorpions, which are the princes of this world of John 12:31. That cross-references Genesis 3, verses 1 and 4. That also cross-references Revelation chapter 20, verses 2 and 3. Jude 6 cross-references John 8.44 and 2 Peter 2.4. John 8.44 in the classical reference system, cross-reference system, found in the Zondervan classic, I'm sorry. John 8.44 cross-references Jude 6. You're of your father the devil. That cross-references the angels chained in darkness and that cross-references, and, and John 8.44 also cross-references, 1 John 3.8, he that commits sin is of the devil, for the devil sins from the beginning for this purpose. The Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now, 1 John chapter 3 it's very difficult, and 1 John in particular, but especially 1 John chapter 3, is a very difficult chapter to understand in the King James. I've written an entire paper on 1 John chapter 3 entitled Sin and the First Epistle of John because there are two different things that John is talking about in that chapter. There is the committing of sin, and there is the authoring of sin. We all sin. We're all sinners. But John isn't simply talking about sinners, where he says, he who commits sin is of the devil. John's talking about something more than that. John is talking about the creators of sin. He who is creating sin is from of the false accuser, from of the devil. Since the false accuser sins from the beginning, for this the Son of God has been made manifest in order that he would do away with the works of the false accuser. Earlier in the first epistle to John, John tells us, that our sins, if indeed we're of the children of Israel, would not be imputed to us because we, the children of Israel, have an intercessor in Christ. Even a small s, Satan, an Adamic man who's opposed to God in his lifetime, has an intercessor in Christ and has an opportunity to repent. The capital S Satans, they simply don't sin. They're not even under the law. In fact, Psalm 50 tells us 
that the law does not even belong in the mouths of the wicked. John's saying in 1 John 3, 8, and he uses a Greek verb, poieo, the verb that we get poet from. The word poet comes from that verb. The word poieo means to create, to author, to produce. John's talking about the authors of sin, not simply the sinners. John's talking about the bordello owner. The pimp, not simply the poor fool who caves into his own lusts and commits a sin. John's talking about the sorcerer, not the guy with a headache that, that, that is weak and caves in and gives in and buys an aspirin, as we're all human. He's talking about the authors of sin. He's not talking about the victims of sin. Those weak among us who participate in the world out of our weakness. There's a huge difference. This passage is also cross-referenced to Matthew 13. Verses 37 to 41. John 8, 44. In this classical reference system is cross-referenced to Matthew 13, 38. And I will read Matthew 13, verses 37 to 41. He, meaning Christ, he answered and said unto them, he that sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, the Israelites. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world. And the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be at the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend. And them which do iniquity... When were the wheat sown? Christ isn't telling us that the wheat are going to be sown with the spread of the gospel. Christ is telling us that the field is the world and that the wheat had already been sowed. He that sows the good seed is the son of man. Yahshua Christ is Yahweh manifest in the flesh. Paul tells us that the world was made through him. The wheat were sown back in Genesis chapter 3. The tares were being sown 
back in Genesis chapter 3. The enemies of God were already a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There were lots of tares already when Adam was created. Those fallen angels crept in amongst the garden of God. They crept in amongst the Adamic race, and they race-mixed, planting tares among the wheat. That's what Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 6 are all about. Two-seed line is true, whether you like to call it two-seed line or not. But two-seed line, from a pragmatic view of scripture, of history, of archaeology, of anthropology, two-seed line, from a pragmatic view, can certainly be proven once you understand that the world and its inhabitants are split into two groups, not three, not four, not five, not eight, not two dozen, two groups, sheep nations and goat nations, wheat and tares, good fish and bad fish. The kingdom of heaven is like an ant, when cast into the sea, pulls up every kind of fish, and the good ones are stored in vessels, and the bad ones are taken and thrown in the fire. There's no third kind of fish. There's only two kinds of fish. Good ones and bad ones. Everything that Yahweh created in Genesis chapter 1 is good. There's nothing he created in Genesis chapter 1 where it says, and it was bad. How could there be so many bad fish in Matthew chapter 13? It's because Yahweh did not create all the fish in the ocean. He only created the good fish. The bad fish were sown by the devil. The bad fish were created by that race which originally rebelled from God and corrupted his creation. That's where the other races come from. And when they mixed with us, with our Adamic race, well, that's where the Jews come from. That's two seed line. Because the serpent and his descendants, yeah, 
We're to have enmity with them forever. But is the seed of the serpent limited to the descendants of Cain? When the serpent is only one leaf on an entire tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And is not every acorn that falls off of that tree part of that seed of the serpent. Your brother is your seed as well as you. Your first cousin is your seed as well as you. That's why at the end, the world is only separated into two groups, wheat and tares, sheep and goats, good fish and bad fish. Yahweh didn't create the bad fish. They're bad because they're genetically bad. They're bad because men before Adam rebelled. Angels, if you want to call them angels, that's fine. That's what the scripture calls them. Angels are ostensibly men throughout scripture. Throughout scripture, there are angels who can't be told apart from men. And those angels, those angel men, that they went out and mixed their race with every kind. And the book of Enoch tells us they mix their race with every kind of animal. That's the only thing that scripturally, scripturally accounts for the origins of the non-white races. That they are fallen angels bound in chains of darkness. I can't possibly get through Clifton's entire paper tonight. I ran my mouth way too much. I may finish this another night, one night soon, but this is just a precursor to a greater 2C line series that Yahweh willing I'll be able to complete later this year. It won't be 35 segments like the one that I did with Eli James. That was torture. It won't have all those Judeo-Christian ideas dragged into it. But it will start at Genesis, and it will elucidate 2C line in the Scripture. But 2C line is not Adamic man versus Jews. Anybody with any understanding of Scripture and history should know should realize readily that the seed of the serpent, that the people who are forever opposed to our God are in some total much greater than simply the Jews. The Jews had their special place in history and their special enmity with us and with God because they are the progeny of Esau. And from the time Isaac was placed on that altar, two races were dedicated to the purposes of Yahweh, Jacob and Esau. 
Jacob and his children being the vessels of mercy, Esau and his children being the vessels of destruction, all future history would revolve around the story of those two races. There's no doubt. But that tree of the knowledge of good and evil was much, much wider than simply Esau and the Edomites. They didn't even exist in the garden. History revolves around, modern history revolves around the struggle between Jacob and Esau, between white Christianity and the descendants of Esau, who are Jews as well as Arabs. The greater part of the Arab world is also related to the children of Esau. Go read your Old Testament. You'll find it. the tree of knowledge of good and evil, all of the other races, all of the non-white races descended from them. That's why in the New Testament there's only two groups of people. There are no third parties. There's not sheep, goats, and, and orangutans. There's not sheep and goats and ostriches. It's sheep and it's goats, period. It's not wheat and tares and sunflowers. And the sunflowers, that they're not involved in either the wheat or the tares. They're neutral in the struggle. No, that's not what the scripture depicts. You're a wheat or you're a tare. There is no third choice. That's real two seed line because that's scriptural. I don't care what the traditionalists say. No man has the whole picture. Not even me. I would never claim to. We have to build on the foundations left for us by our teachers. Swift, Cabaret, Gale, Capped. They set us in the right direction. We can't stop with them and their understanding. Certain clowns in Christian identity think that Yahweh made Negroes, and then they claim to be um, traditionalists after the, after the path of Wesley Swift. Wesley Swift will tell you that Satan brought niggers from heaven. That's what he says. Go read it. That's not what I would teach. Wesley Swift, Bertrand Compare, they were great men that they really um they really set the stage for us to gain a much better understanding of scripture than we've ever had in history. But they weren't perfect. We can't put our predecessors on a pedestal. We should never seek to be put on pedestals. We should only seek truth and hope that our mistakes continue to be corrected. Two C 
seed line teaching does not insist that Satan is in heaven. Satan is here amongst us, all over the place, and has been since Adam was placed in the garden. Well, that's half of Clifton's paper. I would suggest, I'll post a link to this paper on, on his podcast, and I would suggest that that, that um, the listener go to Clifton's website, print out the PDF, take his cross-references, and study them for oneself. That's the best way to learn is, is to read as well as, as well as merely listening and to investigate things for oneself. Regardless of what your teachers tell you, investigate them for yourself. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, and good night. I'll be here tomorrow night with Sword Brethren with a Joseph Goebbels speech. They're always good. Good night.